All right, well, this morning we're going to continue as we look through the Confession of Faith. We are in chapter number seven of the Baptist Confession of Faith, so if you have a copy of that, you can have that handy. But then also, if you would, take your Bible and turn over to Galatians chapter number three. Galatians chapter number three. And we're going to, in just a few moments, we're going to read through verses 15 through 29. Uh, I read through the first half of this particular chapter last week and uh, into about verse 17, and then we're going to pick it up again in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. Uh, there are many uh, points of consideration uh, in Galatians 3 with regard uh, to the covenant or this uh, covenant of grace we dealt with last week as we introduced what is a divine covenant uh, based upon chapter 7 of the Confession of Faith concerning God's covenant. There in Galatians 3, let's look together at verse number 15. The Apostle Paul writes, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now, last week, as we introduced chapter number seven of the confession, we primarily dealt with the definition of what a divine covenant is. And we covered one of the elements uh, primarily. We went into an exhaustive uh, definition of covenant, how the covenant was arranged by God, the purposes of the covenant. And we thought in depth last week that and ended with the reality that the divine covenant is a commitment that's made by God. And of course, if God makes a commitment, if God makes a covenant, uh, then there is this promise uh, God has given of um, unreserved fidelity, or he promises to be faithful and uh, to all that he has promised. In other words, every covenant God makes, uh, God will keep his 
promises. We never have to worry about um, God saying, well, I made a promise, but now I'm going back on that promise uh, because that covenant uh, was committed by him. And we learned last week that a divine covenant is a life and death bond. It's a life and death promise. This is not something that just deals with physical life. Uh, Primarily, it deals with more than just our physical life. It deals with our spiritual life. So a covenant is a bond in blood, so to speak. In other words, what seals the promises or what seals the covenant is blood. And of course, we know that the blood of Jesus Christ is in fact that which seals the covenant. So God, we ended, ended, ended with this thought last week, that God never enters into a casual relationship with man. In other words, God's relationship is not based on something casual, something that's flippant, or something that is minor, but rather it is based upon something that is a matter of life and death. So remember, we mentioned last week that it would be a frightening thing to only be in a casual relationship with God if it were possible, because that casual relationship would not have any basis to stand. Now, I know today many people are moving towards this desire to make God more casual, uh, to make God what they think is more accessible. But the beauty of God is that it is not a casual relationship and that he is truly accessible because I'm able to come unto him through the blood of Jesus Christ. So a casual relationship would be one that maybe would come and go um, in, in life. Casual friends don't usually last a lifetime. Uh, All of us who are of any age uh, had uh, friends years ago who we were good friends with, maybe in high school, maybe in junior high, maybe even elementary. Kids had relationships we thought we're always going to have, and those relationships have since disappeared. We haven't spoken or dealt or seen any of those people for years. Those were casual relationships. So the idea of saying, I'd rather have a God who was based on a casual relationship and didn't have so many requirements would be kind of a foolish relationship to enter into because God could simply just break off that relationship at any time. But this divine covenant is what, and I'm going to use this terminology, maybe it's not the best word, but it's the word that binds God himself. Now again, God's never going to break the covenant Uh, but man often finds himself unfaithful to God. So as we deal with this continuation this morning of chapter 7, let's deal with the second part of this about not only has God committed this covenant personally, but we also understand that the covenant is ordained by God's grace. The covenant is ordained by God's grace. The reality is, is even without a covenant, man owes God obedience. So even if God doesn't give a covenant or a promise to redeem, a promise to save, a promise to deliver, man just by his pure nature owes God obedience. Now remember, we studied a little bit last week that when the covenant comes into existence, when God brought these covenants into existence, there was a, an expectation that man would obey. There were promises of blessings if man obeyed. But with the reality of God is this, that whether or not God had made a covenant or not, man owes God obedience because God is all man's creation. 
man's creator. God created that man, and man is, is obligated to return obedience to his creator. But instead, God gave a covenant, and with that covenant, God chose of himself to offer blessings and rewards for man's obedience. There, there is a reward for obedience, and there is a reward, there are blessings of God. Um, sometimes we have, again, we've, we've misused grace often by saying, well, grace means God will give me blessings all the time, even if I don't obey him. And that's just simply not true. God still expects obedience from us. He expects obedience from his creation. But if man had obeyed God, and when we learned about the fall of man, had Adam somehow obeyed God, God still would not have been in the least even the least little bit obligated to reward Adam for his good behavior. In other words, even if Adam had been perfectly sinless, even if Adam had not sinned in the garden, God would not have said, okay, now I'm obligated to reward Adam. God chose and chooses to reward obedience. Not out of obligation, right? He's not doing anything towards us out of obligation. He's not even doing anything in order to necessarily just reward us. He's doing it for his own glory. But what God had done is God committed himself, like we learned last week, into this life and death bond. He committed himself and he bound himself by his own covenant. In other words, he made a promise unto himself. Now if we, and, and, and God cannot lie, so uh, pardon this crude illustration, God cannot lie to himself. God can't lie, and he certainly can't lie to himself. He can't make a covenant with himself and then say, I'm not going to keep the covenant. Uh, if you and I tried to make a covenant with ourselves, we would find ourselves breaking the covenant each and every day. That's, that's what we are. We would say, I'm not going to do this, and 10 minutes later we do it. Okay? Uh, God, God's relationship here with us, uh, he, is, he is bound in this covenant relationship because he chose to, not because man deserved it. So, when we talk about the covenant is ordained by God's grace, we need to understand that a covenant is God's divine and gracious condescension towards man. In other words, God came to man. Man did not go to God. That first paragraph we read in the confession last week said the distance between God and the creature is so great that And although reasonable creatures do obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of the covenant. The covenant expresses God's condescension voluntarily. He came down to man. He didn't wait and say, okay, man, you come up to me. No, voluntary condescension by God. And how did he do that? He sent his son. So Christ condescended to here, to earth, to mankind, interceded on their behalf. So all of that covenant is ordained by God's grace. And secondly, what we need to consider, and we'll go into paragraph two here in just a moment, is the covenant... It's not only ordained by God's grace, but the covenant is administered by God's sovereignty. So ordained means it's, it's put into motion, it's, it's set, it's, it's 
fixed how it's going to be. But God administers it in his sovereignty. In other words, God does it according to the true nature of himself, according to his sovereignty. Now, the second paragraph of chapter 7, we read all three of these paragraphs, but we'll just read paragraph 2 again, says, Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law. Notice the emphasis, man brought himself under the curse of the law. How did man do that? He did that through his own sin. He brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall. It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him. Now there's the requirement of the covenant. Requiring of them faith in him. Who is the them? The sinners he freely offers life and salvation unto. That they may be saved. And promising to give unto all those that were ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So, like we've used as an illustration, when man makes a covenant with another person, another individual, there's usually a mutual agreement. The terms are they're, they're framed. Here's the terms. Here's the length of the, ter- the term, the covenant. Here's the requirements on the person who is setting the covenant out. Here's the one that's accepting the covenant. The mutual terms are agreed upon. Two signatures are placed on a line and somebody witnesses and said, okay, now this, this becomes a binding contract. There's mutual consent. Now, one of the misunderstood aspects of God is God does not mutually consent or mutually agree before the covenant is put in force. In other words, he didn't put the covenant out there and then say, okay, now man, I want you to agree with my terms. Actually, it's, it's, it's actually opposite of that. God says, this is the covenant and not being crude, I don't really care what you think about the terms. Whether you think they're agreeable or not, whether you think they're fair or not, whether you think they're just, and by the way, they're all those things, but man may not think it is. You know, like I gave you the illustration last week, remember sometimes we've all signed contracts we wish we wouldn't have signed and we realized the terms are a little bit heavier than we thought when we signed the contract, although I can handle this, only to find out a couple years later, so boy, I wish I wouldn't have signed that. Now I'm bound to it, I can't get out of it, and it's more than I can bear. But God, when he makes a covenant, uh, he puts the covenant into agreement there is or into action there is no uh, mutual or bilateral agreement when God makes a covenant with man he does not ask man for his opinion his covenants are monergistic if you heard that word before m-o-n-e-r-g-i-s-t-i-c monergistic the word mono means one, or mon means one. It's not synergistic, which means plural. In other words, when God makes a covenant, when God made those covenants, it was not a plural agreement. It was one. He said, this is what the terms are, and I'm not asking you to agree to it. He's simply saying, this is what it is. That's where we understand that every covenant throughout the Scripture is a sovereignly administered. In other words, God ordains it, 
God authoritatively imposes it upon every single person whether that man consents to it or not. In other words, every person on this planet is under the obligation to respond to God and to act in obedience towards Him. Okay? There's no one that can say God didn't mean that for me. And again, that's one of the misunderstandings of the doctrines of grace. When we talk about those things, people, people try, to, they try to pigeonhole God and they put God in this spot that say, well, God's not allowing this and God's not allowing that and God's not doing this. Man is responsible to respond to God. Every man, woman, boy, girl is responsible to respond to God. There's an obligation. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Again, mysteries of God. Uh, nobody has figured that one totally out. How can God be totally sovereign and ordain everything, yet hold man responsible for his actions? Adam is living proof of that. Adam was held responsible and accountable for his sin, and yet we understand that the covenant and a covenant was put in place. So, whether man agrees or not, there is still this sovereign administration of the covenant of God that's taking place. You'll notice again at that second paragraph in the confession, it says, and this word always gets me, when it talks about man bringing himself under the curse of the law by his fall, his own responsibility, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. It pleased the Lord to do that. In other words, the Lord was not burdened by the reality of providing this covenant of grace. Now, what Adam had failed in was the covenant of works. Remember, we studied that, that the covenant of works said, Adam, if you can keep all my law, then you can redeem yourself. You can acquire eternal life if you can just simply not do this one thing. Don't eat of that tree. So Adam brings himself under the curse of God, as, his, as he is our representative, we're all brought under the curse of Adam's fall, yet it somehow, in the mysteries of God, pleases the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners, freely offers sinners life and salvation by Jesus, Jesus Christ, and the covenant of grace requires what? Faith in Him. He's not asking man, do you want to have faith in Jesus and your church or faith in Jesus and the church and baptism? Do you want to do enough good works? He says, here's what's required for you to be a partaker of the covenant of grace. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the terms. So every time mankind tries to create another way of salvation, what he in effect is doing is trying to create his own covenant of grace. He's trying to get God to mutually agree to his terms. That's why works-based salvation is so, so far off. Because for, in order for works-based salvation to even be effective before God, God would have to amend his own covenant and say, okay, I'm going to amend and break my original covenant and now say, if you can do enough good works, I'll go ahead and reward you with eternal life. No, biblically speaking, God says it's a requirement of you to have faith in Christ. So every individual who rejects Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation and the only means of faith is rejecting God's covenant offer. 
He promises to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life. Yes, God has His own. None of us know the number of those individuals. That's why we never try to attempt to say, that person deserves to hear the gospel. That person deserves to hear the gospel. That person deserves it. We make a free offer of the gospel to every single person. No matter where they are, no matter what they're involved in. Go into some of the cities in our nation right now that are on fire every single night. Every single one of them can hear the Word of God, can hear the Gospel being preached and proclaimed. We could say, well, they're too wicked to receive that. We're all too wicked to receive it. The free offer is being proclaimed out there. God's not going to lose any of His own, but it's all based upon this covenant, not based upon what man chooses to do with His own terms of God. So when we look at the covenants of God, we see each of them, and again, there's a good question asked in the Q&A last week about whether or not there's one or two covenants, and it was, we're kind of getting to that in the next couple of weeks. We know that truly, because the covenant of works was a failure, Adam couldn't keep it, there's really only one covenant in effect, that's the covenant of grace. However, when you study through the Bible, you'll see God made covenants with Abraham, God made covenants with Noah, God made covenants, individual covenants, that reveal a little bit more and more of who God is. So yes, we are in effect, we're, we are living under one covenant, the covenant of grace, because we know the covenant of works failed. But when we look at these covenants, whether it's the covenant of grace, the main covenant, or the covenants that are made with Abraham and with, with Noah, there are elements that are in all of them. The first element, there's always parties involved. In other words, there's always Two, there's always persons involved in the covenant. It's God and people. Okay? There's always a promise of blessing and reward. Every one of God's covenant has accompanied with it a promise of blessing and a promise of a reward. God doesn't give a covenant without a promise of giving something as a reward. Number three, there are demands and conditions that must be met. And then number four, there is a penalty if the covenant is broken. So how do we see that play out? How do we see God do this throughout the scripture? Well, as we know that the covenant's administered by God's sovereignty and the covenant's ordained by God's grace, thirdly this morning, we know that the covenant in scripture is visible through symbols. Symbols, signs, tokens of the covenant. In other words, God didn't just announce here's the covenant and then not give us visible pictures of it. It's not this nebulous idea. It's the reality that when we talk about tokens or symbols of covenants, we see it throughout Scripture as ways to memorialize those things or to teach us something about what's taking place in the text. So a definition of a, a seal or a token or a sign of a covenant is an outward visible representation that is appointed as God's pledge of faithfulness. In other words, God says that picture, that, that sign, that token, that is a promise of my faithfulness to you. Does that make sense? The, 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 the sign, the token is meant to remind us God's promising, not only he told us this is what's going to happen, here's a promise of my faithfulness. I'm going to be true to my word. 
Now, there are, there are symbols in our, in our society. Um, and these are, these are not on the same level. However, they are, they are tokens or signs of a covenant. Uh, when a, uh, two people get married, when a man and woman get married, the ring that's exchanged is given as a token of a covenant behind all of that. In other words, that ring symbolizes a promise to that, under, that other individual. That ring is a token of a, of a marital covenant that's being made. Uh, if we were to look over in 1 Samuel 18, verses 3 and 4, when David and Jonathan, the Bible actually says, they covenanted together. They gave each other gifts. Those gifts were symbols and pledges of promises of fidelity, right? So when we enter into a contract of any sort, there's always some sort of a symbol or a token, a signed document. We're required to put something down. We're going to put down payment on it or give something as collateral, right? That says we have agreed to this particular covenant. When God made a covenant with Noah and all of creation, he gave as a token of his covenant, the rainbow that we see. that's That's a reminder of the covenant that God made with Noah that he would never flood the earth again. It's only in our wicked society that's taken that and turned it into a symbol that was meant to be as a pledge of God's faithfulness and God's fidelity. And they've turned it into something that it's not. But that's a pledge of God's faithfulness. When God, we looked at this last week, when God covenanted with Abraham in Genesis, that ceremony when he had to dismember and cut those animals in half, that was performed as a seal of the covenant. One man's put it this way. He he said the dismembered animals represent the curse that the covenant maker calls down upon himself if he should violate the commitment. So even those sacrificed animals were acting as symbols. They were acting as tokens. Now, we're not going to get into all the depths of this because this will always lead, and this is probably the most asked question about certain tokens and seals, but uh, the Abrahamic covenant also involved the token or the seal of circumcision. So the, that in and of itself is a study all by itself about the, 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 what that was picturing, of course. But all the Mosaic covenant involved different seals, different signs, different tokens, including certain meals, the tabernacle, all the ceremonial rites, all the sacrifices that were taking place. In the New Covenant, okay, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ Himself established baptism and the Lord's Supper as tokens or signs of the covenant that were to continue until Jesus Christ comes again. So when you're baptized... And we take the Lord's Supper together. That is a picture or a token or a reminder of God's covenant of grace. Those are the two things we're told to observe until he comes. The ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because they remind us each time we see it or partake in it of God's covenant of grace. So that's why the Lord said when he took that cup 
that for many, many years had symbolized something else, when he took that cup and instituted that first Lord's Supper, as we refer to it, he referred to it that this is the new covenant in my blood. The Jews were very used to the Passover meal. That was nothing new to them. But it was quite new when Jesus took that cup and took that bread and now began to announce that this is my body and this is my blood and this is the new covenant. So we see all these different pictures. So when we get to, when we get to verse number or uh, paragraph three in the confession, it says this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament and is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. So the question we ask ourselves then is truly how many covenants has God made? Now, of course, we just mentioned a few of them. We see throughout Scripture uh, God making several covenants. Again, we see one he made with Adam before the fall. He made one with Adam and Eve after the fall. He made one with Noah after the flood. He made one with Abraham. He later reconfirms that covenant with Abraham to Isaac. Then that same covenant is reconfirmed to Jacob. He made a covenant with Israel during the Mosaic uh, period. He made a covenant with David the king. We also read scriptures of a new covenant. So it's obvious that what God has been doing throughout all of history is he's been using several different covenants not to override the covenant of grace, but as reminders or pictures of what the covenant of grace really is. So it's obvious that God uses these covenants. These covenants are the very thing that marks out times of redemptive history. We don't regard them as separate covenants. Okay, this is so important. We regard them as ways of progressive revelation. In other words, God is not... He's not giving us a whole bunch of new covenants. They're all part of a progressive revelation of redemption. Okay? It, they're all meant to point us to the covenant of grace. Not to replace. Not to uh, review and say the covenant I originally made is not quite fair. I'm going I'm to renew it or I'm going to change it. I'm going to update it. Uh, and that's kind of where we said, and again, not, not getting too far in the weeds, that's a little bit where uh, dispensationalism falls and it fails because it, it begins to kind of suggest that the previous covenant uh, wasn't good enough, so now it's got to be revised, and now it's got to move on to another one because God didn't know man was going to respond the way he was. That's where the problem comes in. No, the covenants were not meant to be God revising them. The covenants were meant to keep reminding us of this covenant of grace, and it pushes us back to the covenant of works where Adam fell, and now we're able to say, thank the Lord he didn't leave us under the covenant of work because we would all be hopeless and miserable and have no opportunity of heaven. So they're progressive. Progressive revelation is very, very good. Each time God made a covenant, he was revealing more and more about himself and about his scheme of redemption or what he was doing with redemption. 
Some of you know this, this year I, I've started teaching up at a Christian school and I'm teaching uh, fifth, grade, fifth graders and sixth graders. The fifth graders I'm teaching Old Testament and the sixth graders I'm teaching New Testament. And I'm trying to teach them and connect these two classes, teach these two time periods together. And it's interesting because, you know, you're trying to teach them, okay, when we look at the Old Testament, uh, even though you don't see Jesus Christ's name anywhere in that Old Testament, Jesus Christ is on every page. He's in every chapter. He's in every book. So part of their instruction is to find Jesus Christ in every passage. A couple times a week, they do this, this journal where they have to take a passage and they write, okay, where is Jesus in this particular passage? Because the reality is, is that's exactly what God was doing. So in the Old Testament, he was pointing them to Jesus, the Messiah who would come. So on the flip side, the sixth graders are now saying, okay, we see Jesus because his name is all over the pages. But then we make them connect. Okay, so how does the New Testament passage connect to an Old Testament passage to show one showed the other? One showed to Jesus that was coming. One is now showing here he is. And here's how he fulfills those Old Testament promises. That seems like a lot for fifth and sixth graders. But the reality is, is that's the key to understanding Scripture. Because if, if, you, if you mark out Jesus out of the Old Testament, the New Testament's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Because all of it is part of this picture of redemption. Uh, Pink uh, said this. He said, the covenants are the great landmark, landmarks rather, of God's dealings with men Points from which the disclosures of the divine mind expanded into increased and established truths. In other words, each truth layers upon each truth. It's kind of like building a tower. It starts one place with a foundation. You add another layer, you add another layer, you add another layer, you add another layer. Truth builds upon truth. That's how the scripture is. It builds upon itself. So if we were to answer the question, how many covenants are there or how there really been? Well, really, there's only been two covenants throughout all of history, two uh, overreaching main covenants. Even though we see all these individual covenants, there's really only two. That was the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Some would argue and say, well, the covenant of works was so short lived. Was it really a covenant? Well, technically, biblically speaking, yes, it was. Man failed miserably at it. So the covenant of works lasted only up until the fall. And then the covenant of grace was revealed after the fall. So if someone was to say, did Adam and Eve have a knowledge of a covenant of grace? Well, if we want to get you know, theologically split hairs, I don't think they knew. <laughs> I don't think they knew there was a covenant of grace. They just had a command of God, which was the covenant of works. And man failed. And then it's revealed to them in Genesis 3.15, you failed, Adam. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. You failed, Adam. But here is the covenant of grace. That's Genesis 3.15. That's really the first mention of what we understand to truly be a picture of the gospel. So the covenant of works was the covenant made before the fall. The covenant of grace was revealed. That's key. Revealed after the fall. It wasn't created just after that, it was revealed. It was already there. Adam just wasn't aware of that covenant. So the covenant of works, where were the parties involved? The covenant was made with Adam. Adam, we've learned, is the representative of the human race. So what happened? What happened is Adam, before the fall, failed to meet the covenant's demands. The demand said, don't eat. 
he had to be perfectly obedient. So he failed at that. So because of his failure, he and every person who's part of the human race are subject to the penalty that came along with not being perfectly obedient, which was what? Death. Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We've all sinned in Adam. Now, this is where we've got to really understand it and make this sure this is very important. That covenant of works and its technicality is still in, it's still in force. Because apart from man being able to perfectly obey that, he's still going to receive the wages of breaking that, which is death. In other words, if a person believes I can be a perfect keeper of that law, that very law, that very covenant is going to be the thing that's going to condemn them and doom them to hell. So if a person says, I can perfectly obey the law, friends, they're damning themselves. They're damning their own soul to hell because there's no way they can do that. And if a man tries to do that, if a woman tries to do that, they will find themselves separated from God in hell for all of eternity because they tried to keep the covenant of works themselves. So when we hear the phrase, a covenant of grace, or the covenant of grace, it's a simply a term that's used to identify God's plan of redemption and salvation. That's what it is. It's the plan where God rescues sinful man from his awful condition. The plan of salvation, folks, is a covenant. It's not something you work towards. It's not something that you earn. You know, oftentimes we, we put things in terms that we understand the mind. We understand plans. Some of us are more planners than others. Some of us just wing it. Some are planners. Some, some plan things out a year in advance. Some, they, they don't even plan. They just do it. The plan of salvation was not something that was unplanned. It was before man ever sinned one time it was before man was ever created there was already a plan in put in place for that so all these covenants that god made in scriptures did were not created after adam fell they were already in place before adam was ever placed on this earth so when we see passages like genesis three fifteen, we see promises there the promise of god regarding the seed of the woman um, when we see that Adam and Eve covering themselves in animal skins, those were tokens or signs of a covenant promise. It introduced them to the concept of without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It wasn't, and please take this the right way, it wasn't about covering nakedness. There's a, there's a part of that there, but that's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose was that Adam and Eve would realize and begin to put together, again, truth upon truth upon truth. Wait a minute. In order to cover this, blood had to be shed. So when God covenanted with Noah, God revealed a little bit more. God began to reveal His purposes that creation will continue for as long as it takes 
for God to fulfill all of his redemptive purposes. So when somebody says, when is the end of the world? Here's the answer biblically. When God has fulfilled all of his redemptive purposes and plans. That's when, that's when the end of the world as we know it comes to an end. And you say, I would like something a little bit more definitive. That's as definitive as you're going to get. That might, be, that might be today. That may be, we don't know. Remember, we've been studying in Thessalonians about the reality of the, the day of the Lord and the, the Lord coming again and the man of iniquity being revealed. You have all these things coming together. But remember, here's the key to understanding. Uh, God's purposes, everything that's happening is going to continue until all, till it, whatever it takes for him to fulfill what he has planned and promised. So then you get to Abraham and you find a little bit more. Uh, you get to Moses, you get a little bit more. You get to David, and then you start to see even more and more. Now David becomes this, this picture or this type of Christ that we probably see in him more clearly than any of the other people he covenanted with. But primarily we see it all really coming together when we arrive at Christ. People often say, what's the greatest sign or the greatest picture we see of God? It's through Christ. Because when you see Christ, now you see the saving purpose. You see the plan. The saving plan is Jesus Christ. Every biblical covenant is nothing more than a progressive revelation to bring the individual to one supreme fulfiller of all things. Christ. What is the sign? What sealed the covenant? The shed blood of Christ. That blood that was shed was not just because spikes went through his hands and through his feet and a spear went into his side. Yes, the result was blood, but it wasn't just blood for the sake of blood. It was actually a sign that the covenant is sealed. Christ's stain of blood is and was, in fact, the forgiveness and the remission of sins. It's not some mystical, weird thing, folks. This is what, theologically, people just misunderstand. They just kind of equate the blood as that, okay, that's just a result of what happened from crucifixion. Yes, it was. But if there had not been any bloodshed, there would have been no sealing of what everything had been promised. People say, I don't like the fact that Jesus had to die. Couldn't God have done it without death? No. The wages of sin was death, and the only way to fulfill that was that something had to die. Someone had to die. Their blood had to be shed. So when we come to passages like Ephesians chapter number 2, if you'd like to turn there, we come to passages like this. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, it begins to make a little bit more sense. Paul is dealing with the reality in Ephesians 2 about being reconciled to Christ. And at verse, 12, at verse 11, he, he's talking about the uncircumcised and the circumcised. Again, I told you that's part of a, a deep well we're not going to dig into this morning. But he says, Wherefore, verse 11, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, Paul is trying to remind them of the, the Gentile and the, the Jew, and he's, he's, he's reminding them and getting back into this point that at one time, Gentiles were nothing more than they were, they were not part of the body of Christ. But then look what he says. You were without hope. You were without Christ. You had no hope. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What brings that sinner near unto God through the covenant of grace is blood. Several covenants. We've, seen, we've looked at some of them briefly today. But the promise of that all-encompassing covenant is the covenant of grace. Pink said that says this about the covenants. These are nothing more than subordinate covenants. Let me read that again. Those subordinate covenants were nothing more or less than the Lord's making manifest in an especial and public manner, the grand covenant. So Adam and Abraham and Noah and David, all of those things were making known the grand covenant, the covenant of grace. So yes, the answer to the question in the final analysis, God really has only made one covenant. Because in essence, when you take the covenant of works, you take the covenant of grace, they're really the same essence. The difference between the two is with whom God covenants with. So in the covenant of works, God covenanted with the first Adam, right? The Bible talked about the first Adam, and what was the result? Adam failed. In the covenant of grace, God covenants with the second Adam, who is whom? Is Christ. Christ didn't fail. So other than the parties that the covenant's being made with, the covenants require the same perfect obedience. Perfect obedience would result in blessing and eternal life. But disobedience would result in curse and death. That's why the chapter is entitled of God's covenant, singular. Chapter 7 is not saying of God's covenants, plural. It's of God's covenant. So the answer to that question was asked last week is yes, in effect, there is one covenant there's one overarching covenant, but you can't ignore that there were a lot of little subordinate covenants that were pointing to the one grand covenant. So the covenant of grace, put this as simply as we can, the covenant of grace is the covenant of works fulfilled by Christ the mediator. First Adam failed, second Adam succeeded. It's a covenant of grace. Why? Because the works that fulfill the requirements are those of a mediator. A mediator is the one who makes the sinner acceptable to God. The next chapter in the confession is entitled of Christ the mediator. So we're going to launch out into a journey next week into chapter 8 that is very deep, very rich. There's a lot to it. 
This mediator or mediatorial office of Christ is the very essence of how all of this is taking place. How the covenant of grace is effective and how Christ is that that go-between. It's the reason we're able to pray today is because we have a mediator in Christ. You're, you don't have access to God today because of anything that you are. You only have access to the throne of God because of Jesus Christ being the mediator. Okay? All right. Deep stuff, but good. All right?